0: Well, I think we'll go ahead and get started. i um, going to do things a little bit differently tonight. The the last lesson that I had planned for, which of course was supposed to be week six, we obviously rolled over several weeks, uh, was spiritual progression and regression. And so what I thought I'd do this week is that um, I would I would field some some concerns or curiosities uh, that, that you all have, if you have any. Obviously, I have some, some material ready. Um, the first thing that I wanted to talk about was actually Halfley's question, um, which uh, he's not here tonight, um, but he had asked about tithe. And, of course, we're recording this, so hopefully he can... He, can, um, he
1: wants
0: the link. He oh oh. oh. He somehow know that it was
1: on YouTube, so he asked for the link.
0: Okay. Okay. We'll get him that. And... Um, the, yeah, the link's... There's um, the, the, Just to remind you all as far as YouTube is concerned, on the page I gave you at the beginning there is a web address to the Legacy website and on that website there's a listing of each of the audio versions and then there is a direct link to YouTube and to the YouTube videos. There were a couple of technical difficulties in the middle there, so there's a couple of them that, that aren't on there. But um, everyone that has been recorded properly and, and everything, we've got those. And you have to follow that direct link to the YouTube page because I've left them unlisted. Um, they're, they're not private, but they are unlisted. That way uh, you guys can access them if you want to send them along to anyone, obviously. But they're not just generally out on YouTube for anyone and everyone at this point. Um, and then I've got the podcast, obviously, too, which you can just punch into your podcast app on your phone. And listen to them that way as they come up. So I am going to go ahead and start with giving, uh, and and the biblical principles surrounding giving. And in order to do that, I'm actually starting with worship, and the biblical principles surrounding worship, Uh, because giving, as we see it in the Word of God, is a form of worship. In fact, and um, so as such, we'll start with worship, understand worship, then understand a little bit about giving, and then after that, with whatever time we might have left. if you have any questions about anything that um, would be relevant to the Word of God that you would like to ask, something that you'd like clarified, something that, that maybe you had from a class that, that you thought about but did not ask because of time or, or out of context or whatever, we'll, we'll field those. And whatever, whatever you'd like to ask, we can ask. And then if you have nothing to ask, then I've got a second set of information here, material Responsibility of believers, one toward another, and I just give you a whole heap of verses on it, so it 's fairly self-explanatory uh, from the, the straight biblical sense of um, various responsibilities that believers have one toward another, and we'll just talk through that if there's time now as as I go through the, the elements of worship and of giving, you notice that they're in a slightly different format. Um, that's because I've effectively just repurposed this from some material I have for the church. So I apologize, it's just repurposed material uh, as opposed to uh, not formatted like the rest of it for those of you that feel like the formatting is really... Yeah. This one's different from all the others, I apologize, um, but I just repurposed it um, for the cause. So we're talking biblical giving and we are, in order to do that, starting with the definition of worship and the principles of of worship. So generally speaking, when we talk about the idea of worship, it means to ascribe worth unto something, to adore something, to reverence something with supreme respect. And that's just that general idea of worship, uh, quite literally that you, it's, it's worth-ship, you are ascribing unto something a, a level of worth. So when we talk about worshiping God, it's that we are ascribing unto God a certain level of worth. And obviously, the, the more worth we ascribe to God, the more worship is being done. Uh, the next thing I give you is the definition of biblical worship, which um, is just focusing the concept of worship into the biblical mandate, which is to give unto God the worth that is due to His person, to His character, and His work by nature of who He is and what He does. So because of who God is and because of what He has done, we ascribe to Him some worth. And both of these do matter because uh, one of the things that we find as we talk about God and our relationship to God is that regardless of whether I like God or don't like God, I care about God or don't care about God, if God is the Creator of all things, then He is worth something, right? He has a worth that goes beyond what I ascribe to Him or don't ascribe to Him. So there's an intrinsic worth to God simply by virtue of him being creator, whereby every single person um, has that, that or ought to have that natural understanding of God's worth uh, to those, of course, that understand um, that, that God is creator. He owns us by right, therefore he has that, that right, that worth. Um, but, but then he also has redeemed us, right? And for we who are in Christ, who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, there's an added layer of worth in that I look back upon the, the, the cross of Jesus Christ, uh, we look back in this season upon Jesus uh, becoming a man, uh, the, the incarnation, right, the, the Son of God made flesh, and we see an, an added level of worth in that God is our Redeemer. God is the one who has every right to our loyalty, but then He also purchased the right through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so biblical worship is the degree to which we go out of our way to ascribe unto God worth that is due unto Him. And we do this in any number of ways. We do this through obeying Him, right? If if, uh, if I... Am trying to discern whether or not my children respect me, well, a part of that comes down to whether or not they obey me. And, and if my children have no interest in what I have to say, don't obey me, don't care about what I, what I think, uh, then I'm going to have a hard time believing that my children ascribe unto me any measure of respect, right? And I don't ask, obviously, that my children worship me, but the, the same idea holds true. So through obedience and then and, and, and as an extension of obedience through our determination to um, be what the Lord would have us to be. So when we talk about biblical worship, the idea of ascribing unto God to worth, or his worth, uh, there the manner of biblical worship takes two forms, spirit and truth. And we find this from John 4, and you've got the the text there in front of you, John 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says, the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And then in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, uh, the Bible says, uh, "God that made the worlds and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men 's hands as though He needed anything, seeing He giveth to all life and breath and all things." I give you a couple of quotes here about the ideas of worshipping in spirit and in truth. Albert Barnes said, "As he is such a spirit, he dwells not in temples made with hands." Neither is worshipped with men's hands, though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. A pure, a holy, a spiritual worship, therefore, is such as he seeks, the offering of the soul rather than the formal offering of the body, the homage of the heart rather than of the lips. So the idea is worshipping God inside out rather than outside in. And we've talked about this with religion any number of times, uh, that there is a difference between doing the things that we think uh, the, the, a, a standard of morality would ask of us and actually having a heart that is lifted up unto the Lord in obedience to Him. Any religion can um, manipulate externalities. Any religion can demand an external code moral code or whatever it might be, and uh, people, through their own capacities of self-discipline, can conform themselves to that code, whether, uh, whether we're talking about um, a set of morality or, or, or even going farther than that into, into some uh, deeper actions or, or, or devotions. But there is a whole different ballgame when it talks about my heart and my intentions, whether or not I, uh, I, I from the inside out, are are obeying the Lord, whether or not my heart and my intentions are aligned with His will and His purposes. So the first thing that we talk about, um, okay, I guess I'm, I'm not going, I had some other slides there, I thought. Did I get one out of order? That's all giving stuff. Okay, I guess I don't have any other slides on this. Um, So, let's talk about the Spirit first. When Jesus says, they that worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth, that means that we need both of these in our worship. And the first part of that that Jesus mentions is the Spirit. So, the Spirit is, and and I give you an idea here, the physical worship that we give unto God is only as good as the heart behind it. If I were to, um, if I were to want to Give my wife flowers, and this is generally speaking what we would understand that to be a sign of love and of affection and of thinking of her and whatnot. Those flowers are only as good, not just my, my wife likes flowers. So there's a physical there's a physical benefit or a physical attractiveness to getting flowers, right? But a important part of getting those flowers is the heart that I have behind them, right? When my wife sees those flowers, if I come home with a bouquet of flowers, what is going through my wife's mind is not just, wow, those flowers are pretty, but also my husband was thinking about me. My husband uh, went out of his way to get these for me. My husband spent money on me, whatever it might be. There's this element of, if we can say, spirit that goes behind it, uh, where if that element is gone, then those flowers are, are, are soon going to lose their effectiveness. If I were to take um, take the, the, the idea, okay my wife really likes flowers and I were to give her flowers and she just loves that I give her flowers and I say well that worked really well so I'm just gonna call the flower company and say hey every week I want you to put a dozen red roses on our doorstep because I don't really don't want to have to think about my wife but I like the results of giving her flowers. That, that, that's worked out really well for me so let's just automate the process right? Every week you put 12 12 roses on our doorstep and I don't have to think about her. So for the first week, my wife is excited, right? And the next week my wife is excited because she's getting these roses. And then she starts to see the trend and she's starting to wonder whether or not this gift has anything behind it other than just the presence of roses. And at some point that gift is going to lose its luster because I'm not thinking about her. As a matter of fact, I automated the process specifically so that I don't have to think about her. And if I don't have to think about her, then that gift loses an important part of what made it valuable to begin with, right? And that's the idea of worshiping God in spirit, that the physical acts that we do for the Lord are only as good as the heart behind the worship. And I give you any number of verses here that speak toward this idea. Uh, if you were to read through each of these verses individually, and I'm just going to hit a couple of highlights, what you'll find is that in each case, God is seeing someone who is doing something that He asked them to do, a sacrifice of some sort. But God says, because of the heart with which you're doing it, I'm not actually interested in what you're doing. It doesn't actually reflect into me, uh, t- toward me any sort of love. Because you have done it in a manner that is contrary to to a heart of love toward me. So in Micah chapter 6, at the bottom there of page 1, God, uh, uh, Micah writes, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? This is actually 6, 6 through 8. It's not just verse 6 there. Uh, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. What God wants is not just... Now, several of these things are things that God asked for in the Old Testament. Rams and, uh, and, and, and oil were things that you would use in the sacrificial system that God had put in place. But God says, if you, you use thousands of ram and, and ten thousands of rivers of oil, but you are not doing justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with your God, you're missing it. The religious things we do are not in and of themselves the definition of our relationship with God. They are intended to be the framework within which we worship God, within, within which our relationship exists. So when I t- think about the, the elements of religious devotion that I might go through, reading my Bible every day, praying every day, um, uh, uh, going to church on Sundays, going to church in the midweek as we have at our church. Uh, uh, if I think about the elements of, of what I do at church, the singing of the hymns, the listening to the, 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 the sermon, the praying together, and the giving uh, of, of the, the fruit of my increase. Every single one of those elements of religion that are in my life are intended to be kind of like a fence. Last week we talked about offensive of standards, right? Religion is intended to be a fence that keeps me in, on the path. It, religion is not the path itself. Religion is, are, they're the guideposts that keep me from veering off the path so that if I'm having a bad week. I, I was talking to some folks um, just last night at our church, they're fairly new. And we started singing the first song uh, before I I started teaching, and they just, uh, the the wife started tearing up, and and then they started laughing. And so after church, I was a little curious about this, so I went and sat with them and was chatting with them, and and I said, I just noticed that during that song, you you had, there was quite an effect on you. And they said, yes, Uh, what had happened is uh, about a month and a half ago, the, the husband, he got sick. And he had to leave work and they've been on and, and uh, he, his disability and everything didn't work out properly. So they've been dipping into their savings to live over this past six weeks or so. And uh, it's been quite a trial. And uh, yesterday was one of the days where they were having a bad day. Uh, she had a friend at work who uh, does not believe in the Lord, who was, who, was, uh, really, who was worrying for her. Have you ever had a friend like that? Plants all the worries in your head for you uh, about your circumstances, and so she had a friend that was worrying for her, and and they got home and they were talking, and and they said, well, I know we need to trust in the Lord, but this is this has been a hard day, and they said, well, tell you what, let's let's just go to church. There's church tonight. Let's go to church, and they get to church, and the first song we sing is a song that's called "How Can I Fear," and the song is all about how God is in control, and he he. Uh, will take care of us, and that He's the Lord. He's the Lord of everything, and so I don't need to be fearful, and I don't need to be afraid. And they said, "Now we know, you know. We we came to church tonight. We did we we did that religious thing, and the Lord used it to minister to their hearts in a very particular and unique way. Now, is is it you know church itself? If they didn't come, would that be an egregious offense to the Lord? No, not necessarily. But it was a it was a set of guideposts that. Led them into God's minister ministry to their hearts, because they were in church, and I don't know if you've ever experienced that before, where you've gone to church and it's like the preacher's talking to you, right? And we talked about a little bit about that uh, last week. It's like the message is for you. Uh, that idea is it's it's, it's that a, a, an aspect of your religious devotion to God, as you sought to do so, kept you on the path and, and, and is, is helping you stay on the path. So, uh, for all of that, however, right, all of the thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil, if I say, well, I've got the religious part down so, so I'm, I, I'm in good shape, then, then we've missed the boat. If I say, well, I, I read my Bible every morning, I pray, and I go to church, but then my life is filled with complete disobedience and rebellion to God outside of that, As uh, I was talking to a guy at the jail today, as as he described it, if you live like a devil, Monday through Saturday, but you still go to church on Sunday, that that doesn't please God just because you went to church, right? And that's the idea behind this concept of the spirit of worship. What does God actually ask of you? What God actually asks of you is to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. The religious aspects are intended to guide us into that. And so I give you several other passages here. Um, And the summary of all these points on the top of page 2 is this. God rejected His prescribed method of worship in Israel because the people conducted this worship with a perverse heart. The form of worship was correct in that they were offering their sacrifices, but the heart with which the people brought it before the Lord was false. And so if if I go out and I murder someone and then I go to church... The fact that I went to church doesn't change the fact I murdered someone, right? The idea is that just because I have a correct form of worship, if my heart is not there, we call that legalism, if my heart is not there, then it's not true worship. Now, that being said, the same goes with the other direction. Jesus said they that worship will worship in spirit and in truth. Before we get to truth, are there any questions about The idea of worshiping in spirit actually having a heart that undergirds, uh, a proper heart, a heart of obedience that undergirds our external forms of worship and religion and such. Okay, truth. God expects worship to be from the heart, but He has always demanded that worship be done His way. Uh, We can't just willy nilly say, well, because God sees my heart, I can just worship however I want. And God has to de facto accept it because it's authentic or it's because it's what I feel. Worship has never been that way either. So there's the one side of the spectrum where people are doing it God's way, but they've formed like this, what what I call checklist Christianity, where they feel like as long as they go down the checklist of externalities, that they're in good shape. Even though their heart is far from the Lord and they they, they, they could not care less. The other side of that spectrum is there is a genuineness of heart, but they have absolutely no concept of what God actually wants from them. Of, uh, and, and these are the people that say, well, don't judge me, you know, they go out and they, they do everything that, that the Word of God says not to do, and then they say, don't judge me, God sees my heart. Well, don't judge me, that's always a good idea. But if you're not doing what God has said, then, uh, then 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 what is in your heart, right? What is in your heart? So we see this going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verse, uh, verses 4 through 7. This is Cain and Abel. And there's a lot of potential issues as to what, what went wrong with Cain. But the Bible says in Genesis 4, And Abel, he also brought... The first things of the flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But to Cain and his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So Cain, I apologize, I probably should have backed up a verse or two there. So Cain comes and he brings, he, he became the farmer and Abel became the shepherd. And, and when they're offering their offerings unto the Lord, Cain brought uh, the fruit of the ground and Abel brought a, a, sheep, a lamb, right? Um, uh, the, the, the fruit of the flock. And for whatever reason we don't really know why, there's some theories I have my own theory, but for whatever reason God did not accept Cain's offering. There was something wrong with Cain's Offering. And we don't have all of the information here, but what we find is that there was something that Cain brought before the Lord, and God said, This isn't what I want. This is not what I want. That his offering worship was not done God's way, and so God rejected it. We see the same thing in Exodus 32. This is, the, this is when Moses is up on the mount getting the, the Ten Commandments. So, so God uh, announced the Ten Commandments by voice, to the nation of Israel. And then after that, God says to Moses, I want you to come up and I want you to get the Ten Commandments and we're going to write them on a table of stone. So Moses is up there for forty days. And during this time, uh, the fire, you know, there's, there's fire on the mountain and the people are getting restless and then they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, look, we don't know what happened to Moses. He's probably dead because, I mean, obviously they almost, they felt like they were going to die when they heard the voice of the Lord. Now Moses is, has been up there for forty days. Uh, he's probably dead, so here's what, here's what we want you to do. We want, to ma- you, we want you to make us a god. And what they did is they reproduced the worship of Egypt. The Egyptians were um, uh, they, they worshipped false gods, and so they said, make for us a god that we can worship. And so Aaron forges a golden calf, the Bible says, and he puts it up uh, on a standard and he said, as we, we see in Exodus 32 there, uh, And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and after he had made it a molten calf, and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now this is interesting because what just happened here is Aaron made the golden calf. The people said, this is our God. So Aaron made an altar and he said, tomorrow we are going to have a feast to the Lord. And when you see in the King James, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's always the same name, which is the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, depending on who you talk to. It is the covenant name of God that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. This is God's name and only the name of the God of the Bible. This is not just a general name for God. This is not the name of the Egyptian gods. This is the God that led them out of Egypt. So Aaron says that golden calf is the Lord. He ascribed unto that calf the name and the works of the Lord. And we would say, well, if they're worshiping the Lord through that calf, then what's wrong, right? They're worshiping the Lord, but it doesn't work that way. I can't just say, I'm going to worship God in the way that I feel makes the most sense, and then God's going to see my heart and just say, okay, whatever, as long as you worship me, I really don't care how it happens. We don't see that in the Bible. We see that God had a method. He wants us to worship Him the way He has asked us to worship Him. And if we go outside of that, God regards it as false worship. Not just because people worship, if they'd have called the golden calf Beelzebub or um, Osiris or Horus or Isis or any of the other Egyptian gods, well, okay, that's one thing, but they called that the Lord. We're just worshiping the Lord in the way we know is best. And it was false worship to God because that's not the way He asked them to worship Him. Um, and then we see the same thing. I give you First Kings 12 and verse and 14. The same thing happened uh, hundreds of years later in what we call the divided monarchy. Uh, what happened is Israel was one nation under, under Saul and under David and under Solomon. And then Solomon's son, Jeroboam, uh, uh, Rehoboam, was not a good king, and he decided to um, uh, s- uh, m- make the, the yoke of the people harder than his father. And Solomon, though he was a good king, was actually a harsh, King. He was a he was a, uh, a hard taskmaster. Uh, he he taxed the people heavily. He um, he used them that he conscripted them into like a slave into like a, a slave uh, workforce for a certain portion of every year. Uh, he was he was a hard a hard king. And so they came and said, "Hey, lighten the load, and and you'll be our king." And he went and he asked the counselors that were his father's counselors the older men, and they said, yeah, you need to do this, the king was too hard on them. And then he went and he asked the people his age, and they said, no, 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 no. you need to put your foot down and show who's boss. And so he put his foot down and showed who, who's boss, and they said, okay, we're out of here. And they actually seceded from the kingdom, and they created another kingdom under the king named Jeroboam, and um, they created the northern tribes of Israel, and then the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin became the nation of Judah, and that's where we get the idea of the Jews. They were the Jehudites. Um, the Yehudin, the Jews. And so, these northern tribes of Israel had Jeroboam as their god, and as they had established their kingdom, his kingdom, uh, he noticed that the, the, the northern tribes of Israel, they were still traveling down to Jerusalem to worship. Because you had to, right? That was what God prescribed. Come down to the temple. The temple happened to be in Jerusalem. This is where you worship God. And he said, I don't like that, because if they keep going down to Jerusalem, then at some point the people are going to realize we're all the same people. It's silly for us to be two kingdoms. And then they're going to reunite, and they're going to reunite under, under the banner of David. He didn't want that. So he did the same thing that Aaron did. He set up a golden calf, one at the southern end of his kingdom. He actually set up a second one in the northern end of his kingdom. And he said, this is the Lord. And then he took priests, instead of using the priestly class, he took the very lowest of the people and he made them the priests. And because, of course, they have no... They have no scruples, right? They're willing to do that. And then they had this false worship system. And it was a false worship system. So the Bible says um, in 1 Kings 14 that he he provoked the Lord to anger and he made Israel to sin. So the summary of this is that the manner of worship matters to God just as much as the heart of worship. It's just as important that the believer worship God in truth as it is that he worships God in spirit. A failure at either point leads to false worship, which is an abomination to God. And so um, we, we, we as, as you know, believers need to, need to be careful about this. Most of the church today, if, if they have a problem on either of these ends, it's going to be that they have a, a heart that would desire to worship God, but they worship Him in a false manner. Um, the, the, the church has been draw- bringing paganism into the church for some time. Hebrew, uh, um, Near Eastern mysticism um, and um, uh, uh, Far Eastern mysticism, the, the qigong and tai chi, um, the yoga, the, all of those things, and they bring in all of these mystic ideas, contemplative prayer, uh, uh, transcendental meditation, and they say, we're just worshiping God through transcendental meditation, through contemplative prayer, through all of these things, and they're repurposing near eastern mystic or far eastern mystic ideas to worship God, and in doing so, they are taking pagan philosophies, and, and, and it's, it's, it's the same thing that they did in Exodus. They're taking a pagan worship system and attempting to repurpose it to worship who they call the true and living God. And there may be any amount of genuineness in their hearts, but it's not truth. It's not truth. And then the the, the, uh, lesser end of the spectrum is what I actually deal with more. For, For we who are in very conservative churches, we have a tendency to get the truth part right where we have separation and all of that, but then we start doing the checklist and judging everyone else who doesn't and looking at everyone else and saying they're just a bunch of poor Christians or not Christians at all. We've got the right system in place and their heart is very far from the Lord but they look good on the outside and they're impressing everyone with how they do it. Both of which are absolutely false. We need to find that place of balance where we're worshiping God both in spirit and in truth. Um, this is what Jesus said in, in Matthew twenty three twenty three, and I give you this as the final consideration here in regard to worship. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. So Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees here, and he says, You pay tithe, which is a tenth, which is what the Old Testament law demanded of, of the nation. He said, You pay a tithe even on the smallest thing. You go pick some basil off your plant uh, uh, that, that's in your windowsill, and you'll take 10% of it and you'll set it aside for the Lord. I mean, that is the, that, that's the deepest essence of the tithe principle, right? 10% of every increase. He said, you will tithe even the smallest bit of spice, but you have completely forgotten about judgment, mercy, and faith, which, of course, is the same thing. They, they have truth, but they've missed the spirit, right? But notice then what Jesus says. He says, these ought ye to have done and not to have left the others undone. In other words, he's saying... And I'm not telling you, Jesus says, I'm not telling you that you should not be tithing of the mint and the anise and the cumin. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't be pulling 10% of your basil off and giving it to the Lord. What I'm telling you is that you should not do that at the expense of the weightier stuff, of of the spiritual part of worship. And so once again here we see Jesus saying, no, it's not that you should not be doing the worship in, in, a, in a particular manner. Because that's what God has asked for. But don't do it in a particular manner, in a, in a, in a, in a methodology that's hollow, or that is hypocritical, or that is is, is false, fake. So, and, and what I put here is these, these principles form the foundations for, foundation for the lessons on giving music and dress uh, as we go through this stuff in the church. Those are the three categories with which I apply this. We're only doing the giving one. Before we do the giving one, any questions on worship or thoughts? Okay, so let's talk about giving. What does God ask? What, 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 what is our relationship, particularly with the church? Uh, this time of year is always one of those interesting times, right? Right? Um, because the churches, I remember several years ago, I was, um, I was valeting. I was a valet at the Buffalo Hospital for, for a couple of years early on because I had to be bivocational for a long time when I first became a pastor. I had to work um, outside of the church because they could not pay me enough for my family to live. And um, the people that would come into the hospital knew that I was a pastor. And this dear old lady came in and she went to one of the Lutheran, one of the several Lutheran churches in town. And she comes in and she says, So, Pastor, are you, uh, are you starting your giving messages? And this was early December. And I said, Excuse me? And she said, Yeah, are you, are you starting your giving messages? And I said, I, I, I don't know what you mean. And she said, Well, our pastors at this time of year, every message is about how we need to give. Because, you know, coming toward the end of the year, the church has to meet their, they have to hit their mark, right? So every single message was give, 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 give at the end of the year. And so much... Have you been going to my church? <laughs> so, so this gets around, right? No, but, you know, she and, and so much so that she thought this was, uh, it was a tradition in their church, right? This was not just a one-year thing. This is what they did in December. The messages were about giving in December. And, and um, this, this question of, what is giving, and how does how does my giving relate to the church, and where is the interplay between that is something that, that is is worth talking about? Uh, again, this was particularly for Halfley's benefit as he asked the question. He's not here tonight. I hope he'll listen to it. But um, but I think it can benefit anyone who uh, operates within a church setting and to understand your relationship to the church as it relates to giving. And the first thing that we talk about is the overriding principles regarding possessions. And we've talked about this in several different contexts. Everything that you are, everything that you own, is nothing more than the abundance of God's goodness in your life. All that you have in this life is borrowed from the abundant wealth of your Creator. So at the end of the day, the mindset that we go into is, it's all God's anyway, right? (laughs) It's not that God gets 10%, in in the formal sense he might, but it's all God's anyway. What I do with my money is at the approval of my Lord. What I do with my time is at the approval of my Lord. What I do with the capacities that I have, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, is at the behest of my Lord. And I give you those principles in turn. First, your wealth is not your own. Uh, First Chronicles 29. This is Solomon praying when he dedicates the temple. Solomon, of course, being one of the wealthiest kings that, that in, in the historical record. He says, Both riches and honor come of thee, as he prays to the Lord. And thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might. And in thy hand is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I, the king asks, and and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. Solomon says, All we're doing here is giving back to you what you've given to us. We're giving you back your own stuff. You've given it to us. We're giving it back. For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow And there is none abiding. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand and is all thine own. So Solomon acknowledges here look, God, as we offer these sacrifices, and he offered thousands of rams when we read about that in in Micah 6 6 through 8. Solomon literally did that. There were thousands of altars erected, and they just burned all those beasts. And he says, this is all merely an extension of your goodness to us. It's yours. We're giving a portion of it back. Everything that we're building this temple with unto your name is what you gave us. And he's acknowledging that. And we ought to acknowledge that as well. Our wealth is not our own. Your time is not your own. Time is a very precious commodity. Psalm 90 Verses 10 through 12. This is a, a, a psalm of Moses that uh, made it into the, the, the hymnal there, into the psalms. Moses writes this. He says, The days of our years are three score years and ten. A score being twenty years, right? So three score is sixty years. Sixty and ten, that's seventy. So he says, The days of our years are seventy. And if by reason of strength they be four score, or eighty years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Of all the things that we have on this earth, the, the one absolutely unrenewable resource is time. We have a limited amount of it, and, and every second that ticks by, that one doesn't have a little second hand. so that it, kind of, the, the, it has a second hand. It doesn't have a second. So it kind of ruins the effect. I was going was gonna to follow it. I can't do that. Every second that ticks by is a second that's gone forever. You can never have it back. And that's a general idea of wisdom. But Moses says, and because you are a God of justice and of mercy and because you are the God that you are, teach us to number our days. To look and say, I get 70. Maybe I get 80. What am I doing with the time that I have because my time is a gift from God. The time that I have is a gift from God. And God, help us that we don't get to the point where we have to have cancer. Or we have to have, or, or our days are ticking away before we realize that. Be, it's, it's really great if you can realize that at, at, an, at, a, at a time before your days are actually numbered. And you can start applying yourself unto wisdom. That's right. <laughs> James 4 also says a similar thing whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow for what is your life it is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away and then Ephesians five fifteen sixteen, 16 see then that you walk circumspectly not as fools but as wise redeeming the time buying it back redeeming it because the days are evil the days are short. The days are, are, are evil. The idea being that, that there is coming an end. And because there will be an end, we need to redeem the time that we have. And the uh, principle that undergirds all of it is redeem it for the Lord. Your abilities are not your own. This is the third one Romans 14, 7 and 8. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. And of course, this is a Christian perspective. The world does not see things that way, uh, nor will the world be storing up treasure in heaven as they're um, walking contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is how we live, or how we are called to live. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that's the, that's the living and the breathing and the, and, and the daily in and out, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the idea there being that, that because I have, I've died to myself, that's my will, because I've died to my will, but I'm still living, my intent is that every day what I am living for is the Lord. I live by the faith of the Son of God. I don't live for my priorities, but only to the extent that, that the Lord has directed me to live. That's the manner in which I live. Luke 12, 48. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him much, uh, shall, much be, shall be much required, excuse me, and to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. And that gets down to the, the people that have real abilities. Um, those that are, are the most gifted, uh, if, if our abilities are the Lord's, then those, particularly in a biblical context, that are most gifted are also the most responsible and accountable to the Lord <coughs> for the gifts that He's given. You have a sharp mind, you have a capable body, you have these gifts at your disposal. Um, they were given to you by the Lord, and um, the Lord has the right to them. So this is where we get into the the, uh, the three primary areas of biblical stewardship that we talk about. First Corinthians four two says, "Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful." And it's all alliterated there for you: time, talent, and treasure. The time, the talents, you, the time that you have, the talents you have, and the treasure you have. These are the areas that God is asking you to take responsibility for to be a good steward. He has given you these things, and He has the right them, And, of course, that leads to the idea of giving proper. When we talk about giving, especially in the church context, giving is not just an extension of money. There are some people that may not be able to give much as far as money to the church, but they can give their time. They can give their abilities. And that's, that is an, that's worship. That's an offering as unto the Lord. Um, and and that's, that's right, and that's good. So, giving is worship. Giving unto God is an opportunity for the believer to demonstrate God's worth through giving to God that which he would otherwise desire to use for his own provision or his own pleasure. So giving is a form of worship. It's an opportunity for us to demonstrate, God, you are worth this. You are worth me giving a portion of my financial prosperity to you because you gave it all to me anyway. God, you are worth my time. That can be a harder one sometimes, huh? It's easy enough to write a check and send it off. But you're worth my time. It is worth my time to set that aside so that I can go minister to that person in need. And that's not what I want to be doing on this Saturday, but you're worth it. You're worth the time that is asked of me to go to church on a Sunday morning. You're worth the time that is asked of me to open my Bible and to read it on a regular basis, to get down on my knees and to spend time in prayer on a regular basis, even beyond that. Lord, you have commanded me to to love my family, to take care of my wife and children. Lord, you are worth my time, so I'm going to give that time to my family that that I need to give to my family as unto the Lord. God, you have commanded me to take care of my family. My family is my responsibility under you. Therefore, I am giving my time to them as unto the Lord. Lord, you are worth that, so I'm giving it to you. Giving unto God. Uh, and, and, and this one is also when we talk about abilities, right? The person that says, well, I don't have, I, I, I can't do much. Well, what can you do? And what might the Lord be able to use, do with that? Giving unto God is an opportunity for the believer to demonstrate God's worth through obeying His commands. So not just to demonstrate God's worth um, by taking that which I could use for myself and giving it to the Lord, but also demonstrating God's worth by saying, God, what you have told me to do is worth enough to me that I am going to set aside maybe what I want to do what you want of me. And again, as we think of relationships... This is, this is not an uncommon way to demonstrate our love. It's not an uncommon thing for a husband to demonstrate the love to his wife by going and sitting through a ballet or an opera. It's not what I would choose to do with my time. I took my girls last year to go see the Nutcracker Ballet. Uh, uh, Nutcracker. Not what I would have chosen to do with my time or my money, for that matter. But I was showing my girls their worth in my eyes, by doing that which was important and valuable to them. And we have the opportunity to do that. That's worship of the Lord. Obviously, again, I'm not worshiping my children. I am loving my children. Uh, That's where the examples I'm giving break down. Third, giving unto God is an opportunity for the believer to demonstrate God's worth through faith in God's promises that he will provide for my needs. But I don't have a margin of error I don't have a margin of error. Um, there's, I think there's two size fonts there. Uh, my apologies. Uh, I don't have a margin of error as it relates to my money. Well, who, who gives you money? I don't have a margin of error as it relates to my time. Who gives you time? Uh, last week was a tough week for me um, time-wise. I didn't get hardly any sleep uh, Tuesday night into Wednesday because I saw on the jail roster... Uh, Tuesday night I looked through the jail roster and I saw a guy that I hadn't seen for about eight months. He'd gotten out of jail eight months earlier. I'd worked with him for a year and a half. I did not want to see him on that jail roster, so I couldn't sleep that night. I was praying for him. I was really troubled in spirit. I get up the next morning on about an hour of sleep. I go talk with him. Uh, I, I, you know, get get through the day. I'm I'm, I'm here in the evening. Uh, We have a a whole, a, a really busy week. Um, that, that Friday morning, my dad called me for tech support from Colorado, which he does from time to time because I, I know computers. And I spend two hours on the phone trying to help him get this thing because he needs it for a deadline that he has. And that's time that normally goes into my sermon writing. And so I I'm, I'm go up to my wife on Friday, and it's like 11 o'clock, and I've got half a sermon written. And normally I've got a sermon and a half written by that time. And I say, I'm just in trouble this week. I just don't have enough time. And so my wife comes and we hold hands and she prays that the Lord would multiply my time. I don't know if you've ever prayed that prayer. But by the end of that day, that half sermon was two full sermons finished. That does not happen very often. That, 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 that kind of efficiency does not happen often. But what happened? I gave the time that I needed to, to honor my father, to to, uh, to help in the ways that I needed to help to minister in the ways that I needed to minister and then the Lord gave me back time. I don't know how that happens but he gave me back time not in that he rolled the, the clock back but that he increased my efficiency to an extent that I, I do not normally hit. This is the idea. Can I trust in God's provision that if God has asked me to do something and it's cutting into something I feel I need whether it's time, whether it's abilities, whether it's money. (coughs) Can I trust that if it's all God's anyway and God is asking me to give more money than I can afford, that God has a plan? If it's all God's anyway and God is asking me to give more time than I can afford, that God has a plan. If it's all God's anyway and God is asking me to go above and beyond my level of capacity or ability, well, it's all God's anyway and God has a plan. That's actually where God is most glorified. Is it not? It's easy enough if I've got plenty of money, plenty of time, plenty of ability to just kind of pull from the excess. But when I pull from the necessity and I say, God, this is yours. I'm giving you of the necessity. I'm giving you of that which I don't have. And then you see God work. That's when you go up to someone and say, wow, God did something special. Because God is that kind of God. Because it's all His anyway. Um, questions on, on, on these principles or these points or thoughts? or Okay, principles of worship through giving. Church worship is an exercise of God's people. So regular church giving is an exercise and expectation of God's people. Uh, God does expect His people to support His work. And we see this throughout the Word of God. Um, uh, I give you Hebrews eleven six 6 and Romans 8 there. Both of these are simply generalized verses about faith. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Uh, and then Romans 8, 7 and 8, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. One of the things um, that, that is important in the church setting um, is that while it's all well and good if an unbeliever comes into the church and chooses to give uh, money to the church or whatever the case may be, uh, it's not his responsibility. It's not his responsibility to give any money to that church. I remember growing up, we would have a, a Christmas Eve service and one of the things that our church did is uh, we did communion on Christmas Eve, but we would not take an offering because pe- our church did not want to give people the idea, the Christmas Easter crowd, right, the people that only come on Christmas and Easter, that there's any sort of <coughs> obligation for them to give because that's not, that wasn't the spirit of our church. But I remember as the communion plate was passed around, people that were not regulars were attempting to put money into the communion plate because they just thought, this is what you do. You go to church, you give money, right? You go to church, you give money. Uh, I even had a question about that in our church. A person, he says, I just don't feel right if I don't give something when I come into church because that's what he... You go to church, you give money, right? But God has never asked in the Word of God that the unbeliever come in, and, and, and come into the church and, and give money. It's God's church. The unbeliever certainly can give glory to God, but he's unable to exercise proper <laughs> biblical worship because proper biblical worship demands faith, spirit, and in truth. So as a believer, if you're a believer, uh, there is an expectation upon you that you would be giving to the work of the Lord. We'll see that in just a moment. Um, but the form of that is not necessarily as cut and dry. So regular giving to God is a personal form of worship. One of the things that we talk about is that there's corporate worship and, that, and then there's personal worship. Corporate worship is when the church comes together to do things such as say, sing hymns. There's nowhere in the Bible that indicates that giving is a form of corporate worship. It is something that is between me and the Lord. It's a personal form of worship. And it's intended to be that. Jesus spoke of that Himself in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. He says, "...take heed that you do not your alms," that would be giving your gifts, that would be giving money or giving gifts to the tabernacle, "...before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven." Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret, himself shall reward thee openly. So the idea is... Uh, um, what, what we might call today anonymous giving. No one needs to know how much you're giving. And those that, that, that trumpet the amount that they're giving, well, they have their reward already, which is to be, that they, they're doing it to be seen of men. And so it's no longer worship. If, if the reason why I'm giving a bunch of money is so that man can see me do it, so that I can impress people with my godliness, there is no worship in that to the Lord. I'm worshiping myself. I'm elevating myself. I have just bought for myself some reputation. I have bought for myself uh, a a uh, a level of credibility. I have made a transaction. I've made a purchase. I'm not giving it to the Lord. I'm giving it for myself. This that offends the idea of worshiping in spirit. I'm giving money. God asks for his people to do that for the work of the ministry. But I am not giving it to God. I'm giving it for my own benefit. No worship there. That's the principle. Giving is, por- uh, uh, is, is personal. Regular giving unto God, whether that's time, ability, money, anything else, is by design meant to be between the giver and God. In this way, all glory goes to God. The more the glory of a deed goes to God, the more worship has been done. To strip any glory from God is to strip that deed of its value as worship now that doesn 't mean there aren 't times where public public worship is, is appropriate there 's public singing that 's appropriate corporate singing, and there 's public giving that is appropriate, not for to be seen of men, but, one, uh, but the, the, there is a, a time where encouraging everyone to be a part of something and to give in a manner that is semi public is not necessarily wrong but that 's not normal that 's not normal worship that 's not normal regular giving. To the Lord. Um, And then the glory goes to God. So we have a very small church. Our church has, um, on a good Sunday, 60 people. And yet the Lord has blessed us financially. And when people see how much money is in our bank account, they say, wow, that's an awful lot of money for a very small church. And our church doesn't even know where most of that money came from. I mean, certain individuals do but our church as a whole does not know. And so what does that mean? That means God gets the glory. Look how God has provided for our church, right? Look how God has provided for our church. Not look at how so-and-so or such-and-such or them and there have provided for our church, but look how God has provided for our church because that's, that's the long and short of it. God has given us that money. God gets the glory, and that's the way it ought to be. That's the way we want it to be. So giving... Uh, church worship is an exercise of God's people, and it's an exercise, that, and therefore, um, it's an expectation of God's people. Giving is intended to be voluntary, and this is the point where most pastors fall off the rails. They they really get pressureful <coughs> in regards to you need to give to the church. But God wants our giving to be an extension of our volition, not an extension of our obligation. To feel some obligation to the church, if you're a part of a church, is natural and and even beneficial. But the idea of, I am obligated to give, to give this amount, to give this percentage, is something we simply don't see in the Bible in the New Testament. So, um... In Psalm chapter 50, verses 7-15, the Bible says this, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings, to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Uh, Giving has nothing to do with God needing you. God does not need you. God does not need me. It has everything to do with us needing God. It's an acknowledgement of our dependence upon God, not a, some sort of backhanded acknowledgement of God's dependence upon me. God does not need me and my, my money to sustain His church. God will sustain His church. He does not need me. He does not need me to pressure everyone else in my church to give because God takes care of His church. Nothing uh, Giving has nothing to do with our glory and everything to do with God's glory. God doesn't need our giving to see His work accomplished. He chooses to use us so that He can have His work accomplished while simultaneously blessing us. And that's the neat thing. So God's work is going to get done. But if God asks you, hey, would you give money? Would you give time? Would you give your abilities to this need? If you say, no God, I'm not going to do it, that's not going to thwart God getting his work done. Right? But what, it, what but when you say yes, what it does is it, it, it means that God asked you to help him get the work done, and in doing so, now God blesses you. The work gets done, which is going to get done anyway, but now you get the blessing. Because you were the one that God chose to use, to, to do his work. And that's a great thing. I want that blessing. I need that blessing. So use me, Lord. I'm ready to be used. I want to be used. I'm willing to be used. It's going to sting sometimes. It's going to mean I have to reprioritize sometimes. But it's worth it. And so use me. Not so that I can get the glory, but so that you can get the glory and I can get the blessing. And that's the idea here. And we see a principle... um, that, that is found in Acts chapter 5 that, that reflects this idea. This is Ananias and Sapphira. The Bible says, A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And people were selling their possessions and giving them to the church at this time. And kept back a part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So people were selling their land, their houses, they were taking the money, they were putting it at the the apostles' feet, and then the apostles were distributing it it to those that had need. So, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a possession, and they take a portion of that, and they keep it for themselves. Then they take the rest of it, and they say, and and both of them knew about it, and they take the rest of it, and they give it to the apostles. And um, uh, the Bible says, But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? And to keep back part of the price of the land. Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. He, he died. And great fear came upon all of them. So the problem was not that Ananias didn't give everything he had to the church. God didn't ask for that. This was a free will thing. People were doing this. The problem was that they sold their possession, they kept back a portion, but then they attempted to pretend like this was everything. They lied. And Peter says, Look, the land was yours. You didn't have to sell it. And then after you sold it, that money was yours. You didn't have to give it to the church or give it all to the church. But don't pretend like you gave it all in order to be seen of men. And, and to have the glory of men, but not actually give it all, that's lying. And it's not lying to us. It's lying to God. It's, it's blaspheming God. It is, a, it is a form of false worship to God because what you're actually doing is you're trying to take the glory for yourself. And this is the principle. The money is yours. The land is yours. You can do with it what you will, but don't give it under false pretenses. If you're going to give it, give it as unto the Lord. God doesn't place demands on our giving, but does expect our giving to be done in honesty, sincerity. Giving to God through lies or deception or dishonesty is unacceptable to God because giving is a form of worship and worship must be done in both spirit and in truth. When we volunteer our giving to God, we must do so out of a heart of sincerity with the goal of glorifying God through honest means if it's to be acceptable unto God. The final point here is that giving is joyful. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Once once again, uh, this is Solomon. The Bible says, And he gave for the service of the house of God of gold 5,000 talents and 10,000 drams. That's a ton of money. And of silver, 10,000 talents. And of brass, 18,000 talents. And 100,000 talents of iron. And they with whom precious stones were found gave them to the treasure of the house of the Lord by the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, for that they offered willingly, because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. So they're they're preparing the stockpile to build the temple. And the Bible says the people just like dug into their jewelry. They dug into everything they had and they gave it. And as they're giving all of this stuff that is theirs to the, to the use of the tabernacle, the Bible says they were happy about it. They rejoiced over it because they gave willingly. <laughs> and willing giving becomes joyful giving. Because you know that as you give willingly unto the Lord, you are showing God the worth that is due unto His name. You're doing that which God has asked of you and that the Lord has promised to take care of you and that's a joyful place to be. It's a tough thing and you know you men know this, it's a tough thing to live with money concerns, to live with time constraints. That's not a fun thing. Wouldn't it be great if you could live in an economy where you actually trusted and said my time, my money, my talents, it's not mine, it's God's and because I am being faithful with it I can trust God with the rest. I can actually trust God with the rest. So I don't have to stay up at nights wondering these things. I don't know if you've ever heard of George Mueller. George Mueller was a, um, a he, he ran an a, um, um, uh, orphanage in England in the 1800s. And he was a man who felt it was his calling by the Lord to show the world what could be done through faith. And so uh, he was a man who never took he never asked for a dime, he never, he never went out and asked people for money. He simply said, I'm going to do what God has asked me to do, I'm going to pray about it, the Lord is going to tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it, and because the Lord told me to do it, I know He's going to provide for it. And so he writes in his autobiography of one morning where there was no food left in the orphanage. And uh, there, of course breakfast is coming and there's no food. And so the, peop- the, the workers say, what should we do? And he says, well, get everyone seated at the table. And so they all sit at the table. And he prays and he thanks the Lord for the food that has been provided for them that morning. And the table is empty. And when he's finished with the prayer, he writes, there was a knock on the door. And it turns out that there was a dairy truck that broke down in front of his orphanage. And the guy says, look, I've got milks and cheeses and all this stuff and it's a refrigerated dairy truck, if it's not used, it goes bad. Can you use any of this stuff? And so there, breakfast and significantly more meals were provided in that moment by faith. Because George Mueller says, look, if if God has called me to this, then God will take care of me. God does not ask you to give money and then laugh at you when you don't have enough. God does not ask you to give of your time and then laugh at you as you don't have enough. God does not ask you to give of your abilities and then laugh at you as now you've been expended. And you've been, you you now waste away. God does not ask of you that which He's not ready to provide you back in full and abundantly more. And that's the idea. That's the principle. And so that when I'm giving that which maybe even I don't feel I can give, there is a rejoicing in that this means God has something for me. This means that God is doing something and that's a that's a great feeling and there's peace there. There's comfort there. There's confidence there. So the categories of biblical giving. The one that you hear about if you're in church is generally this daily ministry of the local church. Regular giving. Budgeted items. I give you some scriptural data there that that reflects it. Generally, when we talk about this, we talk about the first fruits principle. The first fruits principle was that God asked the people in Israel, and well before Israel, to give of the first of their increase unto the Lord. That when they received something, they would give the first portion of it. Whether it even be their firstborn child, they were supposed to dedicate him to the Lord. Not obviously kill him and sacrifice him on the altar, but dedicate him to the Lord. That there is this principle whereby the first of everything you get is God's. And this is a principle that says, God, the whole thing was, was given to me by you. And so in faith and in appreciation, I'm giving back to you the first portion of it. That's the idea there. Um, Numbers chapter 18, we see that priests were called to, mi- to live and to minister out of the abundance of the people's giving to them. Malachi chapter 3, God says that that the people had stolen from him in that they had not properly given their tithes and their offerings. And he says, see, if you give your tithes and the offerings, if I will not make your barns abound and be full uh, with grain, because you have been faithful to give unto me my portion. Um, I give you an illustrated principle of that in Nehemiah 10 but let me just jump to the New Testament application of the principle here. Paul asks this, he says, Who goeth a warfare at any time at his own charge? Who planteth the vineyard, and eateth not the, of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth the flock, and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, say, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen, or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes no doubt this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, Paul speaking of himself as a minister, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So God has ordained this principle. And this is always, uh, un- it's, it's, it's normally a very uncomfortable for me to talk about because as, as a minister to say God has ordained that God's people take care of the minister is uncomfortable except that you're not my church. So it's not your responsibility. So it makes it nice and easy uh, with the exception of Greg, of course, um, who's in our church. But other than that, and John as well, uh, um, but... Uh, other than that, you know, it makes it a little bit easier. But the principle is this. The ox that treads the corn, this was the Old Testament law, if, if, if an ox is treading the corn, if he's, if he's plowing down the corn, don't muzzle him. Let him eat of what he's treading down. And to muzzle him would be, would be to get more for yourself. But God says, look, he's doing the work. He has the right to be a partaker of his labor. And this principle goes well beyond the church, right? This principle is businessmen, you know that. You have the right to be a partaker of your labor. It's ridiculous for you to put in the time, the money, and whatever else, and then for people to expect that you don't get your, your, your cut, right? You don't, you don't get back your due. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. And God says the same thing is uh, it does apply to the church that those that minister and labor among the spiritual things, I don't have a product to show for my efforts. I spend all week studying, underlining, uh, reading, typing on a computer, putting together sermons, putting together material like this, and the product that I have to show for it is not something that I can, some ministers do, but that I should turn around and sell. right? That's not, that's not how God has ordained ministry. I don't, I don't do all of this and then put it behind a paywall. But I don't do all of this and then, and then say, you know, give you, the, give you the little three minute clip and then say if you want the rest of it, that'll only be nine ninety five plus shipping and handling, right? I don't do that, that's not what God has ordained, but somehow I have to live. And that's God's business, that's not my business, and yet God has said, how, how does the minister live? The minister lives by, by the extension of those who benefit from his ministry. Those into whom He gives, those are the ones that give back. And to that extent, God has ordained that a minister live by the fruit of the church as they give to Him. And that's the idea here, and this is something that God asks of His people. Now that does not mean that the minister ought to be flying around in his private jet with his 100-bedroom house and, and, and be on the golf course all week. That, that, is, that is not ever. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's the exact opposite of, what, of how the Bible paints a minister. Paul explicitly told Timothy to flee from the love of money. That that is not the character of a minister of, of, of God. But the minister of God has to live. And he's supposed to live out of the abundance of the voluntary offering of God's people to him for the ministry that they have received at his through his time and through his labor. Because the laborer is worthy of his hire. And, and, and my hire happens to be a spiritual hire, which doesn't produce a whole lot of revenue, right, naturally speaking. So God's people are, are commanded to, to, to make up the difference, to fill in the gap. And that's the New Testament application of the Old Testament principle as it relates to that. So I give you all of that here. Giving for the support of the daily ministries of the church is expected by God in that sense. Tithing is actually not a New Testament concept. The, the tithe is an Old Testament concept whereby people gave 10%. God called for the Old Testament Israel to give 10% of what they had unto the Lord. You will never see the word tithe in relation to giving in the New Testament. You'll see it in relation to Old Testament concepts. But you'll never see it in relation to giving in the New Testament. God has never set a number on the believer in the New Testament. And uh, the reason why is because giving is intended to be uh, um, voluntary. It's intended to be uh, out of the abundance of our hearts unto the Lord. And I'm trying to see if I gave you that verse. Um, I don't think I did. Well, I, yeah well i've 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 got first corinthians nine here um but there's let me let me wow. let me look at this other one up real quick um i can't believe i didn't give you this verse in a it's second corinthians nine um in in a lesson on giving well oh, that's not what i wanted to do let's do this Um, So Paul is, uh, there there are several other giving passages in the New Testament. Um, So Paul is exhorting the people to give to the needs of the Jews in Jerusalem. He says, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you, and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before, that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly, that means giving, he that gives a little bit shall reap also sparingly. That's the blessing from the Lord. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. That's what God wants. God does not want your begrudged money. God does not want you to say, I have to give this. God wants you, out of the abundance of your love for Him and your recognition of the need, to give as you purpose in your heart, as the Lord prospers you. And he says that in another passage, As the Lord has prospered you, let every man lay up in store. And that's, that's what God desires of us. So as far as the, the first fruits principle, the first fruits principle is a principle that we see pre-law, after law, it's everywhere that we give of our first fruits, that we give of the first of what the Lord has given to us. That principle is found everywhere. Cain and Abel, it's there. Abraham, it's there. Throughout, through the tithe and the law, it's there. But you'll never see actually in the New Testament a God demands 10%. What God demands is that you purpose in your heart to give unto Him without grudge, without necessity, but cheerfully. And what I've found uh, is that it's, it's normally quite more than 10% when I give in this manner, when I set my mind in that manner. But, you know, o- oftentimes when people say, well, how should I give? How should I start? What should I do? 10% is a, a, a good benchmark. I mean, that's what the Old Testament said. That's what it was. But let's not get caught up in a benchmark. Let's give what the Lord wants us to give. We talked last week about consulting the Spirit, asking the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, listening to the Spirit. Uh, He'll tell you as far as giving, just like He'll tell you uh, in other things, if you're listening. If you're listening. Um, So, to that end, as we give to the needs of the local church and we give uh, to to the regular needs, that's our privilege and our prerogative here. Let me see that didn't that didn't uh okay um second there's there's benevolent giving so we give to the needs of the church second benevolently we give our love offerings uh these are individual needs this is where the lord says look so and so has a need give to the needs of the poor give to the needs of an individual uh, this is different from your giving to the needs of the church. And, and, and again, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that I have to give my 10% plus give to... you know, if, if, if things need to roll over from one to the other, that's fine. If the Lord says to give this much to the church, give that much to the church. Give this much to an individual, give that much to an individual. If it's less for the church and more for the individual, less for the individual, more for the church, just do what God wants you to do. Right? Give what God wants you to give. Give as He asks of you. Give as He prospers you. And Paul exhorts the church to do so. Actually, this is where the Second the Corinthians passage comes in. I just didn't write it all out. But 2 Corinthians 8 and 8 through 9 there is where Paul is exhorting the Corinthian church to give to the needs of the, of the saints in Jerusalem. And, and it was effectively the saints in Jerusalem were under tremendous persecution. And they had lost their jobs. They would lost their families in the name of Christ. And so Paul was taking up an offering. He was going through all the churches in the entire region to get money to take to the church in Jerusalem to help them out. And Paul was very vehement that that this needed to be done, that you need to give and you need to give sacrificially to the needs of these saints. And um, there is, so, so we have this example in the scriptures of giving, of giving with compassion, of giving sacrificially to the needs of the saints. So the application in that one. The purpose of the love offering is to care for needy saints Not to provide for the operation of the ministry. Uh, Gifts for others over and above the regular giving of the local church. If you give, God is bigger. He's the giver bigger still. And so we give to the needs of others as the Lord calls for us to do so. And then the third is the the special projects. We see this uh, throughout the Old Testament. We see this in the book of Acts, where there is a, a work that needs to be done, and it's not the normal operation of the church. It's not giving to the individual needs of someone, but there's a work that needs to be done, and God's people rally together to see the work done. And there is a reason to... Um, to that we, we find the precedent for that as far as giving in the Scriptures as well. And so that's, that's the idea. As it relates to um, particularly the thing that most people have a question about, uh, a, a lot of times it has to do directly with the tithe and with, with that obligation. And, and as I mentioned, the New Testament does not speak directly to tithe. And um, it's a fine benchmark, that, that idea of a 10% benchmark. But there is no New Testament precedent to say that that's what God asks or commands of us. And that's a general idea of giving. Don't, just don't lose, and uh, special giving was the last one, just don't lose, don't lose sight of this word right here that it is a form of worship. That is what you're doing. This is why you don't trumpet it. This is why you don't seek your own honor with it. This is why you do it in the manner you do it. This is why uh, you give out of the abundance of what you have. This is what drives giving, just like it should drive other elements of our lives. What drives our giving should not be, I have to do this. I'm afraid if I don't do this. Um, uh, who's gonna? What, what, what's pastor gonna say if I don't give? Right? There are some churches where the pastor actually looks down and sees whether people are giving and then pressures people. You haven't given this month. Uh, uh, that, if that's our motivation, then we're all off. Because this right here is why you give. Whether that's money, whether that's time, whether that's abilities, this is why you give. And if it's not that, then it's not accomplishing the purpose that God has sent it to accomplish in full. Questions or thoughts on worship through giving? Giving in particular. Okay, well, there's more material we could cover in, in here. But before we do that, do you have any questions for me? Do you have anything that's come up or, uh, that, throughout the class or that hasn't come up throughout the class but it's just on your mind as it relates to something related to the Bible? Uh, we've got about 25, 27 minutes left, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have in, in the time that we have left. Yeah, uh, James, it was uh, James 2 and faith, right? And and the yeah, nature of faith. And
2: this all seems
0: to be this all seems to be the same. It, it, it's, it's it
2: does. Same.
0: It is. Yes, absolutely. And um, it's actually something that, let me, let me get back to the Bible here. Um, it's actually something that we, we we on on this list of verses about uh, the brethren's interaction in James chapter two verses fifteen and sixteen is what I give you on the sheet. Um, it, beginning in verse fourteen, what doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? This is not saving faith. This is not salvation being born again, but this is the idea of is this kind of faith a faith that reflects those who are born again, not that the works themselves are saving, but is, is this saving faith? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? And, and this is an, a, an element of giving as it relates to faith right here in James 2. He says, look, you, you say you have faith. You say that you believe the word of God. Now a brother in Christ comes up to you and, and says, we, we don't have money for clothes. We don't have food. And you look at him and say, well, you smile and say, I'm sure God's going to provide for you. Be warmed and filled. And you send them away with the blessing. Be warmed and filled. But you have money in your pocket that stayed in your pocket. What good is your pronouncements of religious devotion, when the money stayed in your pocket, and they still are naked and destitute of daily food, and you did nothing to minister unto their need. Is that really faith? Is that, is, that, is that really what it means to be a Christian, that we give our platitudes and our verbal cues about how we trust the Lord and the Lord will provide, and then we go and we spend our money on something else, right, on the thing we want, because... Yeah, I'd have to give up that thing that I want if I'm, going to, if I'm going to be the one to give to you. So we'll just trust the Lord will provide for you and I'll keep my money in my pocket. And so that, that's what we talked about there. Uh, Glenn's talking about we have a church picnic a couple of times a year and I preached a message on faith and James 2 and the relationship of works and faith and um, giving does actually come up in that direct conversation. Any other thoughts or questions?
2: Here one thing I would say, when John was little, a uh, couple years old, driving down 35, heading towards St. Paul, it was busy, driving
3: St.
2: Paul, it you was know, really heavy. I run out of gas. Mm. this guy stopped. I mean, it's a nice new car, a guy with suit on, he looks like he's going someplace important. He stopped and gave me a ride me get John, gave me a ride over to get some gas, get me a ride back. I've never seen any well, the only other person I've ever seen that relaxed was Arnold Palmer, uh, at a hotel one time. So, <laughs> you know, it was just so relaxed. But this guy, I mean there was no I mean, the guy had some place to go. Mm-hmm. But talking to him I back. He was the first heart transplant, and he was the longest survived one at that time. Others had had him, but he, he was still surviving. Then. Hmm. And I thought, uh, hmm, he's, he's, you know, he had place to go and stuff, but there was no irritation, there was no, nothing. He was just providing what he could without. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, it just his feeling good. Some people give, but they mm-hmm. you know, could tell it's, you know, right. They know they're giving whatever. This guy was just going to be there for whatever he needed. Uh, it's great. It just makes me think
0: about you know when I get rushed sometimes. And yeah, and it, it is the way it's supposed to be. And yet, and, and of course, we we don't know all of his motivations as far as you tell it. But the 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 deeper motivation that we have to do such a thing is our faith, right? Is that by, by doing this, I am. Giving this cup of cold water in the name of the Lord, I am gi- I am giving this in the name of the Lord. The Lord is being glorified. The Lord. My my my, uh, my, my wife had a similar situation in, in part down in Florida when we were down there, and someone was pulled over, and and um, she helped her out, and the, the girl looked at my wife and looked and said, "You're a Christian, aren't you?" As as she did as she helped the the girl out with changing a tire and. And my wife was able to use that to, breed, to, to, to step into the gospel. My wife and I had a similar situation in Buffalo a couple of years ago where this, this kid, uh, this, 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 this young teenage boy and girl, and they were pulled over, their car had stalled or something. And I just pull over and I go up and say, can I help? He's trying to push this car and the kid you know, is, is not... In shape, and he's not getting very far. Can I help you? So we push the car, we push the car, we push the car. Turn around the corner, get him off on the uh, on the side of the road. There had some ha- had some help uh, um, coming and everything, and was able to give him a tract and simply say, "The Lord bless you." You know, this is this is in the name of the Lord. Was would love to help you, and this is an opportunity for people to see our faith to give glory unto the Lord, and. Um, and in doing so to to obey the Lord, to to exercise worship, and then to reflect that glory uh, in the hearts of others, which is something that we all ought to be doing. I actually had a man in the jail today ask that question too. He said, why is it that not just you, but churches tend to go to jails and help the needy? And I said, well, there's two primary reasons. Number one is because Jesus commanded it. To go to the poor, to go to the needy, to go to those that don't have and to help them have, right? And a part of that process is uh, the, uh, J- Jesus gives the parable and he says, the man stands before him and, and Jesus says, you loved me and you were good to me and, and you gave to me. And, and, and the man says, Lord, when did I give to you? When did I serve you? When did I bless you? And he said, when you went and you gave that cup of cold water when you went and gave to the needy, when you went into the jails and ministered to the prisoners, when you did that to the least of my brethren, you were doing it unto me. That's the essence of worship. The essence of worship. It's not just willy-nilly the, the, everyone, but the idea that as I, am, as I am purposing in my heart to overflow the abundance of God's goodness to me, spiritually and physically, into the lives of others, It is worship, and it's done directly, God regards it as being done directly to Him. And that's faith. When we say, this is for the Lord, this is what the Lord would have me to do, and even though it means I'm losing a little something materially to actually warm them and fill them, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where what I say I believe becomes what I actually believe. So Jesus said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So Jesus said, out of the abundance, uh, abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we do is a good reflection of who we are.
2: So you know, I I've, I've always thought that this. You know, if I do something, or somebody, <coughs> I, I don't know. If somebody wants to pay me you know, I'll like Sure. Sometimes it's nice, but you know, sometimes it seems like it's. If I take something, that to them it's just totally written off. It's paid for. It's sure. It, you know, it's just it's just gone. It cheapens it, we might say. It cheapens, mm-hmm. it, it totally cheapens it, and uh, it's kind of well, like you're saying. You know, the people come to you know, just doing one maybe once a year or twice a year. It, it just seems. A lot of people, a lot of people will go and uh, go to church, you know, maybe every Sunday, and then they go and they spread their life. And, they're, and, they're, and once they leave the church, that one hour a day, the rest of the week, not loving, not, kind yep. of not giving, not so on, it's like, you know, it's like they think they're paying up. Right. Anti-hell insurance for one hour a week. Right. You know, uh, You know, but some people just don't see, if they see somebody else giving, I mean, you can do something, I've noticed sometimes when I'm talking to somebody, and maybe this guy's really uh, really locked down and just never gonna, you know, whatever, I'm talking to him. The person that, that, all of a sudden, somebody—I I find out later—somebody else I hadn't really even known over here, he was picking it up and sure. mentioning it. Yep. And I mentioned that to a girl once. She worked for, oh, she's a minister. She works, on, she she works on her off days at uh, She always takes you know works north Memorial and and different hospitals mm-hmm. and so on. And when everybody else wants to be off on holidays, working refugees, children, and you know the international stuff, I mean. Really I don't know there various that. charities, sure. Yeah, uh, but uh, I mentioned something to her once. Uh, well, she's got some—I don't know—connections. But it's, it's, she's, she's, I went to a, a dinner with her once. and It was with this. Dish. Anyway, the other people who were the dinner it was a, uh, a Lufus dinner it was a Johnsons. It was a time. Second in the world, largest construction companies, or connections with whoever she,
0: sure. she
2: deals with. I said something to her once. She said, Oh, all these conventions, it's all great. You know, work with these kids and stuff uh, on a worldwide basis. I said something to her once about that. And she said something to me later. She said, Oh, she the this thing. She was going to this where they had to talk and they had all the speakers and stuff. And then she thought of what I said and she noticed that the girl that was cleaning the room. Looked, I don't know. Probably anyway, she saw something, so she stopped talking. To her, thought, oh, hey, well, there's somebody. She figured we all. hmm Yeah. But sometimes you know it needs something else. Somebody else says or done. You know, maybe out of the spiritual. Right. To open their eyes, so maybe they can open.
0: Exactly. Them. Yeah, and and that can be a ministry of the word in and of itself, Charles.
4: Yeah, I I wanted to just shift gears and ask a question. Sure. Am allowed to Questions. Absolutely. Uh, I, 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 um, so, so I understand, and this is kind of a shift, to kind of a bigger, deeper question. And maybe I'm sounding like an idiot asking this, but uh, I figure I'm in big company, so whatever. What do you mean, call us idiots? No, uh, yeah. I didn't say like birds company. of a feather. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, so, so I understand the way I was. I, I was. I was born and raised in a Lutheran church. Mm-hmm got confirmed, later on found that um, there was a lot of legalism and stuff involved in that. Mm-hmm. Lutheran Church also became very liberal and kind of created their own agenda at some point. And I departed there and ended up in a place called Upper Room. That's where I met my wife. It was great. Mm-hmm. Super happy about that part. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, the, uh, the thing I'm confused about still is, okay, Jesus is the way in. Yes. I died and I, I accepted Jesus already. I'm, I'm in. Yep. But then there's like, there's the there's like the and something right? Not technically, but kind of right because the more good I did here, the more uh, golden treasures. Yes. Gold, silver, precious stones. Yep. Boathouses and whatever, and so I'm trying to figure out. Um, is that a? Is, that, is there like different levels of heaven? I'm, I'm, I'm they, struggling to understand
0: this. So, so what we have here is, do we have an eraser somewhere for this? Probably paper towel and a and some some stuff here. Can I erase this? I, I don't know. It looks pretty technical, but I think think we're probably have okay here. A
2: picture of it if it was important. Okay. okay. Exactly. Yeah. Looks like an ice Yeah. Greg, it's not one of so Greg's favorite things, ice hoses.
4: I'm just, <laughs> I'm just and,
0: and we've only got 13 minutes left, but let's see.
4: we the world's whole problem.
0: I've, I've, I've got to effectively accomplish all of the New Testament in, in 13 minutes here. So we have...
3: Oh, no, you've got another question waiting. So oh.
0: Well, why did you all... We, we had no, 15 minutes of just dead time there, and then now I've we're... I've
3: got a really good example <laughs> I'd like to read to you.
0: <laughs> You're killing me here. Okay, so we have what Jesus did on the cross, right? And mankind is sinful. All of our sin <coughs> is the thing that separates us from God. Yes. So we are sinful. This is God. Because man is sinful, we are separated from God. When Jesus went to the cross, long story short, what happened was God took our sin. And he poured it on Jesus Christ on the cross, right? He poured all of our sin on Jesus Christ. Jesus became sin for the entire world. He bore the sin. He bore God's wrath for the entire world. And so now the wrath of God is satisfied through Jesus Christ for sin. And if we think of this like a creditor, right? We owed God a debt because of our sin that we've the Father. Well, let's call him the Father because God is, it, there's, there's three persons in the Godhead. We owed the Father, who is the judge, a debt that we simply could not pay. Right? We have this high debt that we cannot pay. So Jesus, not having any debt, pays that debt for us. I can't pay your debt, you can't pay my debt, because we already owe a debt that we cannot pay. I can't pay your debt if I'm in debt. You can't pay my debt if you're in debt. Jesus was not in debt Jesus paid the whole of the debt. So now the debt between us and the Father is satisfied. But again, if you think of it in the, in the idea of like a creditor, the credit, the debt, <coughs> was transferred to Jesus, who is the Son. So now Jesus owns the debt. The debt, the, the, between us and the Father, the, the debt is satisfied. But then the Bible says, Jesus says, God hath given all judgment to the Son. So now the Father was the judge, and now Jesus is the judge. Now the Father's standard has been satisfied. The, Jesus satisfied God's wrath. Now, um, yeah, but now Jesus gets to set the standard for, for the judgment. So now he owns the debt. And so every single person now owns or has this debt that is in Jesus' hands. And Jesus says, whereas the Father <coughs> said, in order to be able to not be, incur a debt, you have to be sinlessly perfect, which is impossible, Right? Instead, Jesus says, since you can't be sinlessly perfect, I bought your debt with my own blood, with my own suffering, and now if you believe on me, you will be saved, right? If you accept me as your Savior, you will be saved. And he will expunge the debt, forgive it in full for those who... who... Genuinely believe. Well, gen- yeah, right, who genuinely believe, who, who accept his offer. And that offer is repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Now, belief is not just mental assent, right? It's not just knowing something in my head. It is the actual exercise of my heart in full faith that what Jesus said, Jesus accomplished, and I'm trusting in it by grace through faith plus nothing. But then all throughout the New Testament, what we have is all of this stuff, right? Know ye not that whoremongers and adulterers and all of this, they shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And all of these these, uh, things like know ye not that faith, uh, can can this faith that has no works can this can faith save him? Uh, this probably should actually say can this faith save him? That kind of faith. <laughs> what James is attempting to do is say not that you have to work to be saved, but that if you are saved, there is a certain there is a certain a fruit. fruit that will come out of it. Right. Yeah. Now we know that not everybody who is a believer will bear the same amount of fruit. And we see that in, in, say, 1 Corinthians. The gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. But what we often fail to disregard is that we have, we'll just call it hell, because we're not going to get into all the technical ideas of the afterlife. And then we'll call it heaven. And hell is the place you don't want to go, and heaven is, thank you, heaven is the place you do want to go, right? And this is a line that we've often drawn. Uh, where we, we kind of have this, you either go to hell, you go to heaven. If you go to hell, that's a bad thing. If you go to heaven, it's a good thing. And there's nothing else involved. But that's not actually true. The Bible says that hell and heaven... The Bible says that on the Day of Judgment, there's going to be uh, a, a book opened. And then there's going to be several more books opened. And the one book is called the Book of Life. And then these other books are the books of our works. And so the Book of Life, in the Book of Life are, are the names of everybody who has believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, or everyone who by faith has been justified. So in the Old Testament, of course, they didn't know Jesus' name, <laughs> but it was still faith in the finished work of of God in the revelation of God as it presents itself. And all of those names are written in the Book of Life. And whosoever's name is not written in the Book of Life is cast into the lake of fire. Anybody's name who is written in the book of life is brought into heaven, but both of these people, I guess those errors should go the other way, are going to have a day where they are judged by their works. Still, even if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's a day where you're going to be judged by your works.
4: So hold on to clarify. Greg dies today. Yes. Hopefully he don't. I agree. I'd be sad. But Greg dies today. He's done lots of great works. He believes in Jesus, right? Yep. So he goes right now. He's going to heaven right, right now. But then at a later time, this, this will happen. And then there's going to be another conversation with him?
0: About his works. Okay. Yes. So, yep. so
4: between now and that time.
0: So the Bible says that, that um, what, what we find in Scripture, hell is actually not the, not the same as the lake of fire. They're two different places. Hell is a waiting place, awaiting waiting judgment. So, but, it's I mean,
4: but until that book of life gets opened up at that point, between now and then, he's chilling in heaven?
0: The Bible says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. So he is in heaven on credit. Can we say it that way? Okay. He hasn't been judged yet, but his name is in the book of life, so he's there.
4: He's in like, you know, like on, on God's pontoon boat. That's right.
0: Right, okay. yeah. And so, so he is there uh, awaiting the Lord to finish his work. But he doesn't have his resurrected body yet because that, that has not come yet. So he is, we might spirit. he's a spirit, he's a disembodied spirit. But the, body, the Bible says we will have resurrected bodies one day. And so at the, at the judgment, when these books are open, that's where we have our resurrected bodies and that's where the book is opened and we are judged by our works. Now one of the things that we get into our minds is that just because I've been saved, that's it, right? Uh, my kid gets saved, mission accomplished. I get saved, mission accomplished, you're in, no big deal. The Bible is not clear about just why it is this way, but the Bible is very clear that that is an absolutely incorrect way to look at, at, at life. That the things that we do on this life, the, that day of judgment for our works is a day that really, really, really matters, and that those who don't think it matters are going to have a, a, a whole heap of regrets on that day. And I, don't, I, and I, I mentioned this uh, last week. I, I, I can't tell you what that is. We only have those couple of parables uh, of the talents, right, where Jesus says that uh, uh, a master goes away into a far country for a time to receive for himself a kingdom, and he gives one, uh, w- one of his servants ten talents, and one five, and one one, and the man with ten doubles it, and the man with five doubles it, and the one with one buries it. And so the man with ten, when he, or, that doubled it, when he gets back, the master says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I'm going to make you ruler over much. And he gives him 20 cities to rule over. And then the one with five, he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I'm giving you much. And he says, you, you have 10 cities. And the one that get, has one talent, the man says, I know you are austere, that you're a fearful man, so I just buried my talent. And he says, you're a wicked servant. And he took away the talent he had and he gave it to the one that had 10. And that, that one suffered loss. Now, he's still a servant. This is a parable for the servants of the Lord. But that man suffered great loss. And we don't know what it is, what that means. The Bible never tells us what the rewards are, other than calling them crowns, other than calling them gold, silver, and precious stones. That's what we know. Crowns, gold, silver, precious stones. But what we do know is that Jesus spent the entire second half of his ministry telling his disciples that it matters. And it really, really matters. And then Paul spent a good amount of time in the epistles saying it matters. He said, know ye not that they that run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. So run that ye may obtain. He said, not everyone that strives, that runs, gains the mastery, wins. He said, I therefore so run, not uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beats the air. He says, I'm a runner, but I'm not running just to run, I have a goal. I'm a boxer, but I'm not just boxing in the air. I'm hitting something. If by any means, he says, uh, not not as one that beateth the air, if by any means lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He said, I'm telling others this, but I have to endure too. I have to fight too, or else I might be a castaway.
4: So you're saying that the works here eventually are reviewed and said, oh, wow, look at all this, or wow, you know, you believe in Jesus, but really, come on. You didn't do anything, right? So, yep. the more good things you do, obviously, maybe the more faith you're displaying in God. Yep. Meaning, the more reward.
0: Right, that you're laying up and, in heaven. And,
4: and as humans, we don't really understand what that reward means. We're, right.
0: not, We're not told what it is. But it's not been revealed. It's anymore. entirely on faith sure. that we have to believe that. Okay. Now, now, that being said, there are also, Jesus said in Matthew 7, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord did I not prophesy in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name do many wonderful works? And he will say unto them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So there are a lot of people who claim Jesus, who might even do things in in his name, but they've never actually invested in him. In other words, they've never truly believed. They're using him. They're using his power. They're they're invoking him. They know his power and 2 Peter, warns, 2 Peter 2 warns about this. Jude warns about this. False teachers. People that know the truth but they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Right? They look like sheep. They act like sheep. But they, in their heart, they're ravenous wolves. Right? They're completely far from the Lord. And they do it all on the outside but inside they're a mess. And those people are going to end up here. And this is what James is warning about. He's warning, about, he's asking, do, do you have true faith? Does your, do your fa- does your faith have teeth? Do you see anything in your life that man... Okay, so, so there's an element, you know, there's a lot of good people that don't believe in Jesus, right? They do a lot of good things, but they could not care less about Jesus. They have not come through Jesus. Their works are entirely superficial. It's entirely them disciplining their flesh. Of course, they're not going to get to heaven because Jesus said... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me." John 14, 6. Then there are those who claim Jesus, but they don't actually believe. They have not actually invested. They have not been born again. The, the, the experience that we call being born again is an important concept. Uh, the idea that old things, uh, the, 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, "...if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature." Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. On our first week, Eric asked about, when when we were talking about interpreting the Bible, he said, does the Holy Spirit play a role in that, right? The idea that after you get saved, you start to learn things that you could never learn before. It's as if now things are different, right? Things have opened up to you in a way they never did before. You see the world in a way you never did before. And there are plenty of moral people, but they don't actually see the world the way believers see the world because believers have, and this is the way a lot of people describe it when they get saved, they've had their blindfold taken off. And it's like the world is an entirely different place now, and the things that they once saw, they're not like that anymore. Uh, I've got a guy I'm discipling right now, and he he got saved after uh, 58 years, I think. He was 58 years old when he got saved. And he says, I look back at all the things that were important to me and it's filth now. And none of it, he, he said, I feel like my entire life was useless. Because everything that was a priority to me, I look at and I say, that makes, it, it, it was useless, it was, it was, it was meaningless because he sees, his, he sees everything differently now. And he sees everything differently now because the Spirit of God is actually living inside him because he has actually believed on the name of the Lord to be saved. And that's what James is, is teaching in this passage. He's saying, do you bear any of the marks of a person that actually cares about what God has to say? Now, is it just you care what your church has to say? Is it just you care what what your parents have to say? Is it just you care what society has to say? Is it just you care about what your pastor has to say? Or are the principles of Jesus Christ actually built into you? Because that's what happens when you accept Christ as your Savior. Now, there are people that don't build very much. Um, Hebrews chapter 6 warns about, uh, chapter 5 and 6, Paul is writing to the the, the Hebrew, uh, the Jewish believers. And he says, when I, when I wanted to give you meat, I had to give you milk because you couldn't handle the meat. And the idea there is he's saying, you got saved, but then you got stuck on the basics and you stopped growing because you, you didn't learn and you didn't have the faith to grow. He said, I want to give you the deeper stuff, but I can't because you're stuck on the milk. Perpetual spiritual infancy. But then there are those who have the faith to say, God's word matters. These rewards matter. I don't even know what those rewards are but they really, really matter and that's, those are the ones that live kind of in in the principles that we we, we talked about tonight. That's the one that says, I am going to give as an outgrowth of worship unto the Lord and therefore that is, that's how I live. It's not about my benefit, my gain. It's about the Lord and His glory. So there is this line where in the Bible it talks very strongly to believers about works and about what we do and about why it matters. But we don't know what those rewards are. We just know that it really, really does matter. And I think we're going to be surprised on the day that we get to heaven who actually has believed on the name of the Lord to be saved and who hasn't. And I think that... um, that there's going to be a lot of people that maybe looked really, really good, but they never actually committed themselves to Jesus Christ. They never actually, having heard the gospel, submitted themselves to the gospel, repented of dead works, put their faith in God, and put themselves in that category. And there's going to be other people that we say, wow, you know, that, that's, that's a surprise on the other end. Um, so there's that standard. And that standard is a, can I say it's, it's, it's kind of a low bar? And it's belief alone. It's that simple. But that doesn't mean that, you know, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. He said, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Wide is the way that leads to death, and many there be that go in thereat. Why? Why is it that if, if salvation is so simple, Jesus did it, I don't have to do anything, I don't have to work for it, then why is it that so few people, relatively speaking, find it? Well, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, not many noble, not many wise, not many uh, um, mighty are called because the the wealthy and the noble and the powerful and the intelligent have a hard time accepting that there's nothing they can do because they can solve all of their earthly problems themselves. Their mind, their power, their associations, their money can solve their problems, and now they have to transition to this idea that you are absolutely helpless. Uh, Pride is the enemy of the gospel, right? A person has to actually get to the point where they say, I am willing to acknowledge that Jesus did this for me, and then to accept that he did this for me, and both are both hard. First acknowledging Jesus died on the cross for me and then being willing to say when I accept that he did this for me now I'm, I'm accepting that he died for me and that's a hard thing. Someone else suffered for me. Someone else died for me. That's a hard thing to accept. It takes humility for a man to do that and that's why for, for all of the, 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 the simplicity of the gospel there's not that many that actually find it. Because there's so many things that can pull us away from that simplicity in this life and and make me think, well, if I just do enough good things, I'm in. I can earn my way some way, somehow. And then what that that does is that frees my conscience from having to submit myself to God, which many people don't want to do. Tom. So this one...
3: And we had discussed. Oh, can I pause you for just a quick
1: second. Just say one comment about that. I think a major difference as to what's going to surprise us is the number of number of people that had, had knowledge or head belief, but not heart belief. Yes. So they knew everything. They cognitively believed it was true, but they didn't really believe it deep down inside, and therefore, it spurred them to to produce the kind of fruit that James is talking about.
0: Right, because. That's how you know a person, by their fruit. That's how you know yourself, by your fruit. If if, if if you bear no fruit of what the Bible's saying, you really need to question whether or not you're in faith. Because, and, and and not just meaning here, you've grown up in a moral family and so you do moral things, right? That's not it. It's heart. What is in my heart? What are my intentions? Do I do I actually bear the fruit of one who is a follower of Jesus Christ? And um, yeah, that that will be the surprise exactly, Greg. The number of people that claimed Christ because they had something up here, but, and and this is the example of faith, right? If I believe that chair is going to hold me up, and I can say that chair will hold me up, but if I never sit in the chair, I've never actually put my faith in it, right? I've never actually put my faith in the chair. If I, I I can say that that chair will hold me up. I can say I'm sure that chair will hold me up. But if I never sit in the chair, then I'm not actually putting my faith in the chair.
1: A a good analogy for because a lot of people (coughs) go on fishing in Canada. I could say, I believe we're going to catch fish in Canada. Okay, but if someone says if we don't catch a fish, you die, you still believe it? I'm betting that. Blackpool's a good fishery, but I'm not betting on those stakes. Right. Right. But I'll live and die with these things. That's a big difference because I'll still say I believe that we're going to catch fish in Canada, but I don't really heart believe it.
0: And that is what you're doing. Because
1: I'm not willing to risk everything on it.
0: When you're accepting Jesus as your Savior, you are betting your eternity on the fact that Jesus was true.
1: Not just your eternity; you're betting your present because you give right. up the right to your time
0: and your talent and your treasure. Yeah. You are you are so you're giving up.
1: the present mm-hmm. and a belief in the future.
0: You're giving up your your vengeance, you're giving up your money, you're giving up your priorities, you're giving up you're you're giving up uh, the possibility you are you are yielding to the possibility of persecution maybe even unto death. All of those things are on the table for you in this life when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. But like Greg said, you're mortgaging it on the future. You're saying that this that everything that I lose or give up in this life is is pittance because it's nothing more than an investment in a future that is greater than anything i could possibly imagine and a person that does not actually believe that that future is there is not going to actually give things up he might give things up in a token manner he might give but then he'll give in a way that others see him give so that he can have the praise and therefore he says he's investing in eternity but he's actually investing in his own reputation and so there's this backhanded capacity to use religious zeal in order to boost my own status, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, the idea is that I believe that what, what Jesus offers me in the life to come is worth giving up anything in this life, and those are the ones that truly believe. And then from there, it's, a, it's, an, it's about choices. How much, do I, how much am I really actually willing to... to to yield, and to that degree, I'll receive rewards or not. Tom, sorry to interrupt you there before, what what do you, go ahead.
3: So we have discussed that, and this is not gonna be verbatim, obviously I don't have my notes today, but. Yeah. The phrase was, um, why would you want to try to hold on to things in, in this life which you cannot keep, rather work for the things in the next life that you can?
0: Right. Yeah, Jim Elliot actually wrote that in his diary right before he was killed by the Aka Indians. He is no fool that gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose.
3: And then we had talked about that we would rather work for everything and all of the rewards in heaven. If we're working for the rewards in heaven, is that not the same to a certain degree? As what? Of... kind of putting money first rather than God's work first. I mean, wouldn't it be better just to work for God? Being, yeah, being I selfish. I see. It, 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 it's whatever happens to come for the reward come for it, rather than to say I'm going to work for the rewards in heaven?
0: Per- perhaps in one sense we can say that it, it's selfish in a sense except here's the difference is that, and I think this is one of the reasons why God doesn't tell us what they are. I am working for something that I do not know, just on the promise that something will come. And, and because I don't know what it is, it is still abjectly faith. And that faith, the Bible says, what, uh, the, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So even if I am laboring for my own rewards in heaven, the fact that I don't know what those rewards are, means I am laboring in faith, which means I am glorifying God in that I am abjectly trusting. I don't know what that is, but it is worth it because God said so. So it's a double blessing. The first blessing is that I'm glorifying God because it is faith. I mean, it, it, if there are so few Christians that live by faith, in this country in particular. The, I, I could... There are so few Christians that don't live by the exact same rules financially, uh, um, emotionally, and and, and anything else that the world does. They have emotional problems, they run to the same things the world does. They have financial problems, they run to the same solutions as the world. There are so few Christians that actually operate on a plane of, of, of true faith that when you see those that do, there is a glory to God, and then you add to that the blessing. So this is what God has always done. He, he, he has this insane system that, ha, that, is, is, that no man could devise. If you want to believe that the Bible was not written by man, it's penned by man, but not written by man, what man would devise a system whereby I can do nothing, I yield everything to the divine, and as the divine works through me, not only does he provide for me, but then he blesses me for yielding to him. That's such a not-human system whereby I put my faith in Him, I yield everything to Him. There may be some suffering in this life. There may be some some loss in this life. Those things can happen, but as I yield to Him, I'm glorifying Him. But in, in doing what God has asked me to do, I mean, God has every right to demand of me by creation and by redemption that I do it without any other. I mean, even by creation, right? You create something, it is yours. It does what you tell it. If it doesn't do what you tell it, you scrap it or you make it do it, right? Whether we're talking about a car or a computer, whatever you build, if it's not right, you make it right. It has, it doesn't have a will of its own. It can't do what it wants. And yet God has not, he, he has taken his creation and he says, look, if you do what I've created you to do, not only is it going to glorify me and, and, and I have the right to that, but then I'm going to bless you for it. That is, that, that, that's divine. And so, yes, in one sense there is a selfish motive. In one sense, and the reason why I, I believe that it's not, it's not truly selfish, is because God has not told us what it is. So it has to be one hundred percent on faith, believing that it is to my benefit. And I mean, obviously, that's that's what we, you know, that that's what we want, right? God. God God has the, I guess God has the right to say, look, do all of this to your detriment and to your hurt and to your destruction and your eternal doom, um, but that's not going to win anyone to, to, to him in love, which is what he's seeking. Instead, he says, if you have enough faith to believe in me and to believe what I've told you, you will reap blessings, but you've got to believe it. And then you live on it. You invest in it. And that, those are the ones, those that have taken up their cross to follow him, and then some people, you know, there's some that only, they, they have the five talents, right? They, they, they're only, they, their investment will be less. They've just chosen to invest less. They've got a little bit more in this world, a little bit less in the world to come. That's their choice. And there'll be a day where, where the works will declare that. And then there are others who invest, and, and, and there's, there's going to be some that buried their talent in the ground. Still a servant, but buried it. And then there's going to be those that invested maximum. And Paul says, that's what I'm going for. Maximum, He says, I, b- I bear the scars of it. I mean, he was beaten. He, was, he, he, he had scars all over his back. He'd been shipwrecked several times. He says, the, those, are the, those are the marks of my reward someday. He just doesn't know what they are. Because that's, that's that element of faith. What else on this? Thoughts? Yes, sir.
2: Works. Seems like the way it is, boxes of people in society and life and everything is put up, and, uh, what it it works. Doing good here, building this there, doing this. But then I see, you know, like, talents, different different talents. Everybody's got different talents. Some people, it might be business. Yep. Somebody else might be compassion. They're, they're gifted with something that uh, sometimes they turn it off because uh, society if family and everything else are guided another way. Yep. Like you, you're good. You got understanding and you have the ability to put it out where it's understood clearly. Uh, you're using the talent. Well, how's your talent being used? Is it a profit you? Right. No, it's uh, the basis of it all. is God is love. He who loves the Lord of God, the Lord of God, and, and whatever. And whatever a person is good at, if they're using that to further love and how, whatever it, it comes up, uh, they're trying to. It just disrupt just, the era. How you're trying to, to get something. It's like... Uh, How do you get the uh, reward it's like trying to please a woman? It never works. Man, <laughs> man figures you can do this, do this, do this. But then uh, uh, the but the love you want is maybe when all of a sudden she gives you the hug and she's coming you just feel that encompassing
0: thing. Right. You can't. I mean
2: I don't know how to do it. Maybe some men do,
0: it, but I don't know. S- it's yep.
2: just i got to take her faith that there's something there that she's well, to
0: me that is... And, and you talked about a couple of different biblical yes. and spiritual topics there. And one of the things that I would encourage you to recall, particularly after you have committed yourself to, to the Lord, is this idea of fruit. You know, God does not ask us to conjure up within ourselves godliness. We can't do that. Even in Christ... We can't conjure up godliness. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit. We say, do you see the fruit? Well, fruit grows, right? Fruit grows. Jesus said, a corrupt tree does not bring forth good fruit and a, a, and a uh, um, good tree does not bring forth corrupt fruit. And so the idea is, what is the fruit of your life? Not just the fruit of your actions, not, not just whether you walk walk little old ladies across the street and and you do moral things. But what is in your heart? Is there within your heart a yearning to do things God's way, even when it's difficult? Uh, 1 Corinthians says that, that the wisdom of man is foolishness with God and that God saw fit to use the foolishness of preaching to win the world to Him, right? The idea is that God uses the weak things of the world, the foolish things of the world, to to confound the wise so that if I try to do it my way the way that makes sense to me the way that is success as defined by the world I'm not going I'm, I'm to find any success with God but if I yield to the, to the Lord then what he does is he starts to work out his own character in me and that starts to change me from the inside out. And now I start to want to do the things that he has asked me to do. Whereas before I thought about those things and I'd say, There's n- I wouldn't even do those things, much less ever want to do those things. And all of a sudden you find yourself actually wanting to. When you find yourself actually wanting to forgive those people that have wronged you. When you find yourself actually wanting to spend time with God's people in church or outside of church, when you find yourself actually wanting to invest your time and your talents and your treasures in the works of the Lord, when you find that, that's when you are seeing God actually producing himself in you. When you read about all of the things that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 about not doing your alms to be seen of men, not praying to be seen of men, and you start to actually care about that, that you want to do it God's way, that is the, the mark that God is doing something in you because you're right. It, it, the idea that if I, as we try to think about what might please God, just like we might think about what might please a woman and then you're completely off, right? And each woman is different. I told you before about giving my wife flowers, right? There was a little bit of a miss. I, I translated my wife's desires into something that would perhaps be more relatable, my wife. Every once in a while, flowers are good. But if I want to give my wife flowers, I actually go out and I buy her a big bag of beef jerky. That's my wife's flowers. She just loves beef jerky. If she, if she, if she wants me, if I want to express my love to her, I go get a a bag of peppered beef jerky, and that's that's better than than ten dozen flowers. I would not have guessed that when I married her. Right? You might not have. I might not have guessed that. But that's my wife. God doesn't work on our plane. God does not work on a material plane. God does not see things the way we see things. But when we are in Christ, when we have submitted ourselves to him, he begins to teach us about himself and we begin to want that. We begin to desire that. We are drawn toward that. And then the degree to which I have faith is the degree to which my words will will, will bear fruit in heaven. But it all starts, of course, with Jesus, and that is is true belief. And so there is this tension in the in the Gospels that many churches and many faith systems feel. I think every faith system feels of where does where does the idea of works of faith end and works begin? What what is a work and what is faith? Jesus said in, Ma- in John chapter 3 when he was telling Nicodemus, and he told Nicodemus he must be born again, and then he says, the wind blows where it will. You can't see where it came from. You can't see where it's going. So is the Spirit of God. The interesting thing about the wind is that the only way to know where the wind is blowing is by evidence, right? You either hear it because it's, it's, it's blowing through the trees and you hear the, trees ra- the, the leaves rattling, or there's a bad seal in your house and you hear a whistle or they're creaking, or you see it because you see the trees leaning, or or you feel it because you have nerves. There is absolutely no capacity to know whether or not the wind is blowing outside of some thing that the wind is coming into contact with whereby your senses are able to identify it, right? There's no capacity because you can't see the wind itself. You can only see it in the evidence of what it touches. So is the Spirit of God. I cannot tell you in this room who is or who is not a believer except to the extent that I see the Spirit of God touching you, blowing you in the direction that the Spirit goes. That's all we've got. Now theoretically it is belief alone, it is faith alone. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is, that is salvation. But how do we assess that in our own lives? Do I see the wind blowing? And then how do we assess whether we're right with God on any given day? Do I see the wind blowing?